in one hour and 14 minutes, I am going to attempt to go through a kind of crash course in practical assertiveness skills uh, within a Buddhist framework to some extent, I hope. And then I want to talk kind of more deeply about equanimity and what that is uh, from a real practical standpoint, and then get into the, the muck of some real difficult situations. And along the way, I'll slow it down for comments, questions, and so forth. Okay? So first off, um, it, um, it's, it's a lot easier, I think, to uh, come to peace with situations when we know that we've done what we could about them. Or uh, minimally, we've told the truth to ourselves. Secondary, second level, we've told the truth to others. Third level, sometimes we've told the truth in various ways, certainly our truth, to you know, people who we feel have mistreated us, who have harmed or wronged us, or harmed or wronged others that we care about. So how do we do that, right? How do we do it in ways that are you know, um, kind of the best dodge strategy? So I'm going to go through some, for me, key points uh, from my own experience of being in this work for a long time now. So first off, I want to talk about right speech or wise speech. The Buddha had six guidelines for speech that is wise or appropriate. And um, it's interesting the ways in which um, uh, he put a lot of attention on speech and language. You know, acts of thought, word, and deed. Okay? So in terms of word, uh, the six criteria are uh, five are required uh, for right speech. One is optional. Okay? And the point, again, is that these are means to the end of one's own liberation. You know, it's nice that they're good for others, but primarily in the Buddhist frame, they're seen as aids to one's own progression in the path of awakening. Okay. So first of all, wise speech is speech that is well-intended. It's based on goodwill rather than ill will. Aha. You know. Two, it is true. It's useful or beneficial. It's timely. And it lacks harsh tone. That's one of the hardest ones of all, the tone. Lacks harsh tone. It's not harsh. Okay? It may be firm. It may be grave. We're going to explore firm, grave, uh, assertive, direct, um, passionate. It may be heated. It may be real. It may be eyeball to eyeball. But it doesn't need to slip into that territory, you know, yellow flag, orange flag, red flag of harsh tone. Okay? And then sixth criterion is the optional one, to be, but it's desirable. Why speech is speech that is wanted by the receiver. Okay? It's not a requirement, but it's an encouragement. Okay? So that's why speech. Any quick questions or comments about what those standards are? Okay, all the way in the back. The what repeat? Okay, here we go. Okay, six. Uh, well intended, true, beneficial. Timely. I think about the times we kind of ambush people, hit and run. We implicitly demand their attention by our intrusion in their world. If you think about it, attention's kind of a very fundamental property. We just take it. We don't ask. We don't knock before entering. You know, timely. And not harsh tone. Okay? Those are the five requirements. And then the sixth optional one, although desirable, is speech that is wanted by the receiver. Okay. Any other questions on the Buddha's view, at least? Where I find myself really watching it is on tone. 
You know, for a lot of people, the issue is, that's the key issue, you know, um, tone and slipping in tone. Inflam- saying things that were inflammatory, you always, you never, um, revving up really fast, uh, just slipping in that kind of snippy thing. Uh, body language, uh, you know, do it ready. You know, my wife called me on this one a while ago. I try not to do it anymore. I don't do it so grossly. I'm going to do it pretty grossly. Ready? Watch my face. One, two, three. <laughs> you know, I think about teenagers, I see them for <laughs> sometimes. Like, you know, uh, anyway, so that's, that's tone. That's a tone problem, okay? Um, yeah, I've really found as a practical self-interest, we're actually in a much more powerful place if we don't slip into harsh tone. We're able, we're because then if we slip into harsh tone, then suddenly they're going to, you know, go. They're going to, you know, have a nice easy way to avoid dealing with the essence of what we're saying, and they're going to slip into how we said it. And then we're into that argument, you know. And we, it's not perfect, but the best odd strategy is to try not to have harsh tone. And I find it's really quite interesting to explore what it's like to communicate with gravity, dignity, authority, truth, conviction, self-respect, self-compassion, self-advocacy, without sliding into harsh tone. And I, I like people who, for me, are exemplars of that. I think, for me, Nelson Mandela was that. Martin Luther King was that. Um, I think of, uh, I mispronounced her name, Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize winner in Burma, peace advocate there. You know, I go, all right. You know, I can kind of feel into that. All right, so that's the wise speech part. Nonviolent, one more, and then I'll do nonviolent communication, which some of you may know. Yeah? Any suggestions on catching body language? Oh, yeah, great. Okay, well, a little bit later I'll talk about equanimity, but what slips us into harsh tone usually is we get revved up. That's where I think Fred's teachings about calm down, you know, are really central. Uh, you know, in, in my book and other places, and the Buddhist teachings are very much about cooling, calming, centering. You know, if we're triggered, and the, the brain kind of has two modes, the, the basic responsive mode, which is the default setting of the brain, um, is calm, contented, and caring in terms of these three fundamental motivational systems of avoiding harm, approaching reward, and attaching to us. So calm in terms of avoiding harm, contented in terms of approaching reward, caring, cared and caring um, in terms of attaching to us. So we're in a kind of responsive mode, but we're very easily triggered. You know, one of the great teachings, I think, in evolutionary neuropsychology is an appreciation of, you know, it's a jungle in here. You know, we got the inner iguana, the inner rat. You know, we got the little monkey, got the primate, my precious. You know, they're all alive and well in there. If we let them loose, you know, we got to really watch. So a lot of what life is about is when the zoo starts hijacking you, it's to keep your foot out of your mouth, don't, you know, slow it down, come back to centers. My daughter's best friend said her in middle school, Laurel, find your happy place. You know, and then communicate from there, you know, so. It's like Baron von Clausewitz said, Prussian general, first rule of warfare, secure a base of operations. And I think very often we're, we're not ready to go to, to really do the confrontation. Step one is to really ground. That's why I started with you know, feeling safer, feeling stronger, being mindful, relaxing, calming, protecting, being on one's own side, you know, kind of creating a sense of shielding if you will, from the world. It's very central. And then we can communicate from that base. Okay? Nonviolent communication. 
How many of you have not heard of nonviolent communication? Really? Wow. Okay, I'll do it very quickly. It's a wonderful approach. The essence of it is essentially a formula. When X happened or happens, I feel Y because I need Z. That's the heart of it. And NVC, to me, like a lot of forms, is really useful when the oatmeal starts to fly, you know, when the wheels come off. When everything's chill and it's it's all fine, sure, we get sloppy, we play around, we joke. It's okay, we get it, you know, it's all right. But when suddenly we realize, "Uh uh-oh, we're DEFCON 3 right now, this is really intense with my brother-in-law at Thanksgiving talking about politics, all right. You know, then we come back to the center. Or, oh, I thought this was going to be a casual conversation with my kid's teacher. <whistles> Okie doke. <laughs> or, you know, my neighbor and my dog or their dog. Or, okay. Anyway, so X is described very neutrally and without harsh tone, very factually. Okay? Not, you know, when X happens, not when you're such a jerk. No. It's like when you come home half an hour late for the fourth time this week after promising to be home by six or calling me on the way when X happened, right? I feel why, not I feel you are an idiot, but I feel sad, I feel upset, I feel angry, I feel frustrated, I feel alarmed, I feel in my belly like the bottom has fallen out, you know? I feel flooded with feelings I had with my ki- when I was a kid when people made promises and then broke them routinely, blah, blah, I feel, okay? It's my experience. I'm, you, I'm the world's greatest authority in my own experience. People can argue with us about uh, circumstances, uh, but they can't argue with us about our own experience, usually, or they don't have much basis for it. And then last, I need Z. Not, I need you to stop being a jerk, but I need to feel safe. I need to feel seen. I need to feel heard. I need to feel there's a framework of trust here. See that structure? It's a really good structure. It's great. Marshall Rosenberg, his book, Nonviolent Communication, it's one of the top three books I recommend to clients. You probably wonder what the other two are, I'll tell you. Focusing, Eugene Genlin, fantastic book about centering. Um, and then, kind of depends, but uh, um, God, I'm blanking on the third book. I know it anyway. Well, John Gottman book, maybe on relationships. Okay, so uh, Focusing by Gendlin or Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. Okay, great. Okay, so. That's NVC, but you can see that right there? And then sometimes on the basis of that, we make a request. So from now on, I request X. You know, Requests are very interesting. Oftentimes, we communicate with other people in the form of commands. And oh, the, I realized the third book was You Just Don't Understand, Deborah Tannen's brilliant book about gender styles of communicating. Uh, okay. So um, as... Uh, Deborah Tannen writes about, she's a linguist, in her book, which is very accessible for people in general, there are three messages when we communicate. Okay, there's the overt content, there's an emotional tone, which may be neutral, often it's not neutral, could be very warm and loving, could be irritated, could be alarmed, what have, pardon me, what have you. And third, there often is a, there's a meta message about the nature of the relationship. Okay. So, for example, if somebody says to us uh, something on the order of, um, let's see, uh, um, you know, the cup's going down. Talking about the dishwasher, right? Okay? The famous dishwasher thing. And 
so there you are. So now you've got content. Cups should be down. Okay? Tone, like, dummy. Okay? And then there's a meta message, which is basically, I know more than you about how to load a dishwasher. Maybe true, I don't know, but that's the meta message. And I'm the knower, you're the knowy, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you. And also I get to, in effect, give you a command about how to load the dishwasher right. right? Three components. Of those three, the one that has the most impact is the third. And it's the one we often pay the least attention to. As we refine the explicit content, the tone and the frame message have the most impact. So they're often the ones to most pay that pay attention to. So I've become myself a lot more attentive to tone, you know, and to communication about frame. Because I, you know, if there is in the population, if this is MIT whatever brilliant genius here and over here is someone disabled, range of intelligence, the range of ability to read tone and the range of ability to track frames communications, people really pick up on communications about tone and frame. So being alert and attentive to those two I find very, very helpful. So a request is different from a command. Now, if they don't meet the request, there may well be actions. You know, I request you do your homework, uh, you know. Well, if you don't, no dessert, but I can't make you do your homework. But I definitely can make sure there's no dessert, you know, and I will. Or whatnot. You know, I'm not arguing for that necessarily as an exchange, but I'm giving that as an example. Okay? I request that you come to work on time. I can't make you, right? I'm not going to order you to. But at the end of the day, if you don't come to work on time after we put you on probation, we're going to give you a termination notice. See? Okay. So, NBC. A couple others I want to lay out sort of as practical things, okay? I've just seen. Focus on the future. I'm dealing with grievance situations, you know, particularly ones that are live. Uh, Most quarrels are about the past. Occasionally we have to process the past. I've seen that. Much of the time, though, you know, honestly, I don't want to fight that battle. I just want to make sure they're never going to do it again, right? Or, Or at least from now on, they're going to do this other thing. That, to me, is very hopeful. From now on, three wonderfully hopeful words in the English language. Okay? In other words, what are we going to do from here? If you think of a typical fight, even a healthy fight, in the beginning, it has a kind of trajectory over time this way. In the beginning, there's kind of mutual spewing. Well, well, okay. But then fairly soon, hopefully, um, somebody, ideally both parties, sort of settle down and zero in on, okay, what do we need to do here? And then they focus on the future more and more. Okay, what do I want from you? What do you want from me? What needs to happen from now on? Okay, I'm not going to argue about what we agreed to about the past. I'm not going to get into the argument about whether I did or did not back you with the in-laws or whatever, okay? But from now on, I hear you. This is what you want from now on. To me, that's really quite useful, okay? Related to that is clarity of desired result. I see routinely that in current situations, which is really where assertiveness is relevant, you know, we can't assert ourselves to people that have, you know, uh, injured us badly and are no longer alive. You know, what's the desired result? What's our aim? Very often I see people in assertiveness situations are fuzzy about what their true aim is or they don't want to say it because it's embarrassing. 
to them. They feel it's embarrassing, even though it's perfectly legitimate and valid. That's where legitimizing the, the grievance or the issue, I think, is very important. Um, to be clear, what is the desired result? You know, it's how the dishwasher is loaded. Or maybe the desired result is more that we, you know, uh, have a good relationship, and frankly, sometimes the, di the dishwasher comes out and the cups are turned up and there's dirty water sitting in them. Okay. You know, whatever it is, but we're clear on the desired result. What would it look like if I got what I wanted here? Or flip it the other way, what would it look like if you got what you wanted here? Because very often we're on the receiving end of other people's assertiveness, which, as you've probably noticed, is not always perfectly skillful, right? Okay, so clarity of the desired result. So any questions or comments so far? I'm just kind of zipping on. This is a, like a pre-flight pre checklist. Yeah? You use the word request. Uh, in business, I can see that working. When you have, you do that with a spouse, a request. That's already a command in many ways. Uh, great question. So what do you do with, in a family situation or a friendship situation, say a, not a business situation, where you offer a request, but it's taken as a command? So sometimes you're right. The truth is it's packaged as a request, but really it's an order. you know, And that can sometimes be confusing for people. Other times it truly is a request, but the other person takes it as a command. And then I think you're working with helping the other person themselves realize that, no, it really is just a request. It, sure, it has force to it, maybe, or it has, there's strength in it, there's wanting behind it. Maybe there's a, a moral argument behind it as, I request that you don't spank the kids. There's a moral view, often, embedded in that request. Or I request that, um, you know, when we're out in public, you don't interrupt me when I'm trying to talk to somebody, whatever. And um, yet it's fundamentally still a request. And I think helping people appreciate that, their respect for autonomy. I'll talk about autonomy momentarily, but to me there's a... Assertiveness is founded on, on, a, on autonomy. My own autonomy, their autonomy, and a recognition that they don't have to give me the thing I want from them. I'll try to give them and make them an offer they cannot refuse, you know, the godfather or whatever, but no, I mean request. Okay, I want to say a couple more things. You know, there's so much here, but I want to move through this kind of like boom, boom, boom as skills to think about. And ask yourself, you know, okay, I'm strong here, strong here, strong here. Oh, okay, Rick said one thing. You know, I'm going to think more about that one, okay? Next one is keep your eyes on the prize. I see so often in assertiveness situations, people get sucked into the vortex of side issues. And they lose sight of the main thing. You know, you know I request that you come home on time from work. Don't you understand I have to make a lot of money for the family because you're raising the kids? Okay. Yeah. And I request that you come home on time from work. You know? Well, there you are being bossy again. No. I'm just requesting that you come home on time from work. You know, I'm not saying this is perfect, but I've just seen again people very often, if you watch a dialogue, it goes back and forth by around the third or fourth cycle, whoosh, it's all over the place. One of the most powerful, and, and frankly, oftentimes we assert ourselves to people who love to distract us, right? Or twist us into some side issue where we start looking bad. Or they say, well, yeah, but you, you don't come on on time. 
you know, there's the classic one. Then for me, a, a move is, I'll happily talk about that in a second, but let's do one at a time, okay? You know, or tell you what, let's take turns. I'll do my issues with you for five minutes, then you do your issues with me, whatever. Or, sure, I'll agree to come on home on time too. And now let's talk about you. Whatever it is, they're just different ways. I'm not saying they're guaranteed, but the general idea is keeping your eyes on the prize. That really has served me a lot. Stuff comes at me, it's all over the place, people are reactive, I'm zeroed in on what can I most join with and what can I most cultivate and pull for my own best self-interest, my own enlightened self-interest, keeping my eyes on the prize. There, it helps to kind of sometimes come back to center, hear things, track them, reserve them for later, you know, exploration or conversations with one's own therapist or lawsuits, whatever. But for the moment, you know, this is what I also, what can I accomplish right here, right now? In this 10-minute drive with you, my child, you know, to school, what can I get done right now? Or in the 15 minutes just before bed when we're both tired and this is not the world's best time, what can we, what can we actually accomplish? Which may be just that we set up a time where we can truly talk with each other. Right? Keep one's eyes on the prize. Another one, um, then I'll pause, is something I've said before, is dignity and gravity. I think oftentimes, how can I put it? I think there's, it's like either do this or this. In other words, either see it, understand it, observe it, and let it go by. Or see it, observe it, understand it, and deal with it in a very, very real way. But oftentimes we get stuck in the middle where we're kind of sputtering, you know, where we're talking about it kind of, sort of, but we're not really bringing it home. And I've seen, uh, you know, lots of people do that. I've seen myself do it. And I don't think that really works. What I think works is people who I think of as like my school teachers when I was a kid, like Mrs. Hall in fourth grade, you know, you don't mess with Mrs. Hall, whatever. You know, she had a dignity and a gravity about her. I think about people I've named already uh, that have a dignity, like Nelson Mandela and others who have a dignity and gravity about them. Um, you know, a seriousness, a realness. You know, we know that place inside ourselves when we're being really real about it and firm and to feel that we actually are entitled to have dignity and gravity. Um, we may not get what we want. We may be thoroughly outgunned, but at least we've sustained our own, we've, we've held our stance. Okay, comments, questions so far? Great, right there? Okay. Where is that microphone? Let's just do that. Do you so. think I need it? No, <laughs> good, but we'll do that okay. mic for the next person. Okay? okay, so sometimes you want something that maybe... Oh yeah? Okay, now, now I gotta bring it down. Um, a little more subjective. Um, like, I want you to stop dumping your anger on me, mm-hmm. you know, and that can take a lot of different shapes. And mm-hmm. then the answer is kind of like, well, I'm not dumping my anger on you. And then you start getting distracted. It's like, well, there was this time when you blah, blah, blah. And you start arguing about the specifics of that situation. How, how do you keep your eyes on the prize and not yeah. get distracted and be specific about something, you know, that's a little more subjective like that. Right. Great question. So a couple of things. And I want to make something explicit that I think Fred and I should have made explicit in right at the get-go. One of the best ways not to 
need to forgive is to assert in the first place. You know, or the second or third time, you know, something's happened, you then talk about it rather than bringing it up after the 12th or 50th time. Right? Okay. So that's, that's one of the ways, and there's multiple ways that strength and assertiveness, if you will, work together with um, healthy surrender and forgiveness and, and letting go. Okay. Second, when you dump your anger on me, that would not get a pass in nonviolent communication. That X is just very fuzzy and so forth. And, you know, the other thing is attributing intentions to other people or internal states is we're on thin ice already. Sometimes we need to. We can feel it. There's something there. We can inquire about it. Okay. But we're already a little bit on thin ice. Okay. When you, I'm going to use a loaded word here. When you call me a bitch or a bastard or what have you or schmuck or fill in the blank, when you call me that, then da-da-da-da-da. It's quite specific, right? Um, So then we would take it from there. And this is a little, this is kind of like, I think of this as as pulling a wheelie. It's like a, a, you know, class three rapid thing to do. But there's there's a practice here with people where we realize for me to get what I want from you, I can see that it would that I can help you give me what I want from you. In other words, if someone, let's say, is angry with us or, you know, tone coming at us or blowing stuff, um, it's helpful sometimes to explore, look, what do you need from me to give me what I need from you? You know, and I'm not saying play tit for tat necessarily or, or let people extort things from you or whatnot, but I'm, I mean, you know, there's a place for that where we realize that, okay, that, you know, my partner, frankly, it's easy for that person to get really heated. That's their temperament. Maybe that's their cultural background as well. They're used to that kind of style. Hits me the wrong, it really hits me hard. I grew up in a really different kind of home or I'm a different kind of temperament or I've had some health issues that make me quite sensitive. You know, okay. So I realized that I can help you not do that thing that really gets to me by let's always eat before we talk about something important. You know, let's not bring up a heated issue just before bed. Let's slow down the interaction. You know, things like that. So maybe one more person, then I'm going to segue. How about all the way in the back and I oh, I so want to get to the periphery I promise you I will I've been centrocentric or something what pick a person any person that's the first person pick that okay now pick the back person okay hi Rick hey there good to see you good to see you maybe you could talk about um, I don't know if you have enough time to but the neuroscience of the physiological experience of the, our friend the lizard, um, prior to a convert, you know, in working with nonviolent communication, specifically around flooding, Great. because that might be um, really Helpful. useful. Yeah. Okay. So, kind of quickly on this, We're, she's bringing up the wonderfully excellent point about managing our own reactions and realizing that sometimes, honestly, we're really triggered. 
and often that's not the exact best time to be assertive. You know, but on the other hand, sometimes we need to. Sometimes we're flooded, we're really mad, or we're really alarmed, or we're really in the middle of it, or we're really hurt, we're really upset, we're really afraid. We're really, you know, there we are. What do we do? And that's where I think, you know, multiple rounds, many rounds of practicing with mindfulness and self-calming, self-soothing, self-compassion, holding things in a bigger picture like Fred has very eloquently spoken of. That's where I think a lot of that comes in. And also some basic understanding that, you know, and then frankly the ancient circuits that evolved to get us from get, get us away from charging lions in the savanna are locked and loaded and fully operational today when someone's snippy to us across the dinner table. Right? And it's so easy to get triggered. So I think um, there, you know, to me, my first rule when I'm upset is to try to recenter myself and get settled down. With practice, you will find, and I think I've found, and I'm sure we have found, that you can get better and better at retaining some mental clarity while you're still really upset, you know. And um, that's just what I would say about that. But I think, you know, the research in general is, uh, you know, do what you can offline to increase equanimity, which I'll talk about momentarily, so that when you're online, it's e- you know, you're more and more able to stay centered while speaking truth to power, as it were. And there's much more to it than that, but I think that's, you know, a decent start. I do little things myself. Um, I hear Captain Kirk's voice in the back of my head, shields up, Scotty. I literally imagine a force field. I was a total, you probably figured this out, I was a total nerd in school, sci-fi kind of guy. And uh, so I visualize a force field, uh, you know, in the Fantastic Four, Marvel Comics. The woman, yes, puts that force field out there that atom bombs cannot penetrate. You know, I imagine that. I do that neuro-linguistic programming trick of imagining that I'm seeing the other through the wrong end of a telescope. I'll imagine a wall of glass like in submarine windows, you know, that's a foot thick. I'll imagine lines in the sand. Uh, I'll feel like a tree. I'll just watch them leave, you know, stuff whistling through. One of the most powerful practices for me about not being so plugged in or triggered by other people is to look at them and to, without condescension, see the suffering in their face. You know, to see it. You know, to, to see it. Even if they're looking all slick, they got their $1,000 country club suit on, whatever, to look past that and to see, you know, the, the, the stress, the strain, not to let them off the hook, but to help me feel better. I better talk about equanimity because I want to preserve time. I learned from rock climbing that if you don't get a good momentum in the morning, you pay a price in the afternoon. So I want to keep us paced because I want to create significant time for this practice for you. Okay, do you mind if I move on from this practical checklist, checklist? Equanimity. In Buddhism, the uh, analysis, which is totally backed up by modern neuroscience, is that there's this kind of sequence or cascade where there's a stimulus. The Buddha called it contact. Something happens, okay? Uh, You get that snarky eye roll across the dinner table or uh, someone unfairly reads you the riot act or... 
you know, in my case, it happened. A neighbor's tree, a huge eucalyptus, falls into your backyard, and it's still there six months later. You know, okay. So something happens, contact, stimulus. Then there's a feeling tone or hedonic tone in Western psychology of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This happens very quickly. It's a great way to teach, you know, lizards and squirrels to, you know, run away from or fight or freeze around what's unpleasant or chase after, go get uh, what's pleasant or if it's neutral, kind of move on and look for something pleasant, right? So the feeling tone. And then comes, um, you know, what a craving in the Buddhist analysis, hunger. We want the pleasant to continue. We want the unpleasant to end. Then that moves into clinging, which is a very elaborated form of craving. We're really getting into it. And then in the Buddhist analysis comes suffering. Okay. Where in particular, we add reactions to the initial thing. It's perfectly reasonable and understandable to enjoy what's pleasant, to like it, or to not enjoy what's unpleasant. Drop a brick on the foot of a Buddha, it's going to hurt. Okay, it's perfectly reasonable. Where trouble begins is when we move out of liking into wanting and needing. That's when trouble begins. That transition from being able to be with the feeling tone or hedonic tone as it is without tipping into craving, clinging, and therefore suffering. Okay, including all our secondary reactions to the event that occurred. All right, that's the kind of overall analysis. Do you see the sequencing in there? Now, easier said than done, it's very often on replay that we look back and go, aha, I reacted to the feeling tone in such and such ways that made a bad thing worse or, or tipped me into problematic wanting and needing rather than simply enjoying what was pleasant and what is what would inevitably, like all things, pass away eventually, right? Practice is to get more and more into real time with things that happen and bring mindful awareness to the feeling tone of stimuli and then observing the tendency, which is hardwired, where it's natural to do this cascade. Mother Nature doesn't mind suffering at all. All she cares about are gene copies. And suffering is a great means to the end of passing on the genes. All right? Get people to get to be get animals to be disappointed and frustrated and, and needing and craving and, and addicted and obsessing about rewards and carrots. Great way to keep creatures alive in the wild. Get animals to endlessly fear potential sticks and overlearn the sticks that happened and and get angry at sticks and develop ways to beat those sticks. Great way to keep critters alive in the wild. Lousy for quality of life. Lousy for living past our 30th birthday. You know? Lousy for a world with nearly 7 billion people you know, pushed up against each other, armed with nuclear weapons. Right? So what are we going to do? We try to get er- closer and closer and closer to this critical junction between the feeling tone, pleasant and pleasant or neutral, in this sequence of reactions, and as much as we can, install some shock absorbers. Okay? So questions or comments about this overall frame, which is very central to Buddhism, and it's really central to psychology in the West. Okay? Wow. I'll say a couple more things, and then take a couple more questions, and then buy time for practice. All right? You okay so far? Okay. So, 
I want to just offer a couple of perspectives to set up the practice. Um, I've often, you know, I think about the serenity prayer, right? Um, You know, may I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the strength to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think that's so deeply true. What I think a lot of what life is about is expanding our awareness of the things we cannot change and really coming to peace with them while simultaneously expanding our activism and our assertiveness and our agency for the things that we can do something about. In that, there's a recognition, and again, this is very much the Buddhist analysis, of the 10,000 causes. In other words, it's the idea that things, as Fred said in the morning, things arise for so many reasons. You know, like, weirdly, I'm here today because... I think a Serbian nationalist assassinated Archduke Ferdinand around 1916, which set in motion World War I, which set in motion the reparations that Germany had to pay, which were very onerous, which set in motion Adolf Hitler's rise and the Nazis' rise, which set in motion World War II, which set in motion the very unlikely event of a cowboy from North Dakota meeting a restaurant hostess's daughter from Los Angeles in the army in 1944, which led to the likely event of my conception six or seven years later. Okay? That never would have happened. So my dad from North Dakota, mom from L.A. So things happen for all kinds of reasons, and there's a recognition that the truth is we can influence very few of them. We do what we can, but there are very few we can influence. And in that, I want to offer Ajahn Chah's, for me, deeply useful teaching about tending to the causes without attachment to the results. Ajahn is an honorific title, um, and Cha is his name. He was the great uh, meditation master in Thailand who was a teacher for the lineage of teachers that founded Spirit Rock and much of the Vipassana uh, stream in the West, Uh, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, uh, people like that. He pointed out, you know, if you want some fruit, You can go to the nursery, let's say. You can pick out a good sapling. You can put it in a good place. You can fertilize it. You can water it well. Pick the bugs off. Prune it well. But you cannot make it give you an apple. And that distinction, focusing on the causes that I can tend to while realizing that I cannot force the results has been so helpful to me. It's on the one hand made me a lot more peaceful about the results I cannot control. And it's also made me, it's put me on the tack of responsibility and agency for doing what I can for the causes that I can actually affect. That's a very helpful perspective for me. Uh, And then to sum up here, I want to just tell a quick story from a teacher of mine, Kamala Masters, um, which holds, in effect, both truths. You know, when we think about ways in which we've been wounded or ways in which there's an ongoing difficulty we're, we're grappling with assertiveness about, you know, Kamala tells this story, which is a teaching about equanimity. She went to India um, some years ago and was taking a boat ride down the Ganges from this kind of temple city quite a ways upstream. I forget the name of it. And her boat ride was at sunrise. So she was sitting in the boat with her teacher, uh, great teacher uh, Manindra, and with a couple of other friends holding the hand of her teacher, And on the left, the sun was rising. 
and the morning dawn lit the ancient towers of this gorgeous city with that rosy, beautiful light, just stunningly beautiful, right? Gorgeously beautiful. So the sun is rising over here, and on the riverbanks over there, people are bringing the dead bodies of their relatives for burning in funeral pyres. And she could smell the scorched flesh on the river. There she is, you know, beautiful sunrise here, you know, death, passing, grief and loss there. You know, equanimity is to have a heart and a mind and a view that's big enough to hold both truths. Now, I'd like to propose a kind of an exercise, and uh, toward the end of it, it'll involve a partner. Like all exercises, you can sit this one out. I do encourage you to stay to the duration, because this has a kind of completion to it. And I really will try to end very close to 5 o'clock. I might slip a couple minutes, but real close. And then I'll stick around happily afterward. Um, By the way, if you want to Contact me. I don't know if Fred's email address is that accessible, but mine is quite accessible. And I can, if you want to contact Fred, I can forward an email to him if something has come up you'd like to pursue with him. Okay, so in terms of this practice, ready? Bring to mind some kind of a challenging relationship, ideally one that's live and in your life today. <coughs> if need be, pick somebody that's not in your life today. But I think it'll, you'll have more options if they're in your life today in some ways, if you have some access to them. Okay? And we're going to start with a bit of reflection and maybe some writing, and then go into a paired process, and then we'll finish with general discussion as a group. All right? Uh, and again, with a headline or around, you know, we always leave things out, I recognize that that little pre-flight checklist on assertiveness skills is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, if you have any interest in it, in my book, Buddhist Brain, there's a chapter on assertiveness, and which goes into a lot of other detail. Other people, Harriet Lerner's wonderful book, I think, The Dance of Anger, very good, very fine book. There are other books about assertiveness, um, you know, what to do in the verbally abusive relationship. It's kind of a classic. So, you know, there are good resources out there. Okay. So, I- including a recognition of situations where it's not safe to assert. And, the, you know, Safety trumps, a, you know, self-expression. We have to establish safety first, you know. And, and don't kid ourselves. Sometimes I think it's important to recognize that, you know, I don't, I don't have the horses in this situation to prevail, or this is not someone that is actually safe to communicate with. Yeah. Oh, her, the, the verbally abusive relationship was a book that a client of mine got a lot out of, and it seemed very solid. I haven't read it myself, but there are others like it. You know, when you think about people in a domestic violence situation where there's the possibility of it, the general counsel is establish safety before moving into communication. So I just want to really name and appreciate the important aspect of that. Um, Okay, so bring something to mind, and then if you can, I'm going to explore first what you can not control, both out there and in here, and then also what you can control influence, both out there and in here. So to begin with, if you reflect on this upsetting, challenging, difficult situation, just start kind of taking inventory, almost like a little list perhaps. What can you not control? Just kind of quietly reflecting, maybe writing. 
I'll give you a maybe a minute and a half on this part. What can you not control? Starting to wrap up on this part. And then if you can, with your eyes open or closed, see if you can open to and relax and soften around a recognition of powerlessness, where there is powerlessness, or very limited capacity to influence. You know, if you have any kind of history of trauma that involved powerlessness, you know, of course, be careful. Help yourself. Be careful about you know, not sliding down the slippery slope about that. But if you can, just kind of staying with the reality of where you cannot make something happen. And try to recognize obstructions to recognizing the ways in which you don't have power. For example, shoulds, like, well, I should be able to get them to stop doing that, or I should be able to get him to stop drinking, or I should be able to get her to stop, you know, using, or um, I should be able to talk to my boss in a way that finally gets through to him so he doesn't keep doing that thing. Watch that. See if you can accept where you don't have control. And realize if you can, what would help you be more at peace with what you just can't do anything about? Maybe say some things in your mind that are specific 
like I let go of, I give up about, I surrender that. Not being a doormat, not succumbing, but releasing, surrendering, recognizing truth. It's not my preference, but it's true that. Be mindful of the good feelings that can come when there's a kind of wise surrender, a wise letting go. And then on the other side of the equation, now we're moving on to where you're the cue ball, not the eight ball. What could you do in this situation? You might reflect, of course, on what you have done or are doing, but in particular, you might reflect on some additional things that you could do. What could you say? Or how could you disengage? A relationship has foundations, foundations that create safety and reliability and therefore trust, trustworthiness. If a relationship is smaller than its foundations, that's a lost opportunity. On the other hand, if the relationship is bigger than its foundations, That's a prescription for a disaster or a problem. And sometimes we have a relationship with with someone that's this big, and then we realize with time, oh, I can't really trust you in this regard. So I'm going to shrink the relationship. I'm going to carve that out from now on. I'm not going to do anything with you involving money. Okay. Or, oh, I realize that I can't really have you over to stay with us for more than two days in a row because... First two days, you can hold on, but the la- after that, you just start laying your number on us yet again. So I'm going to shrink it there. Or, oh, I realize that, you know, it's basically safe to say hello to you in the company hallways, but to be together with you on any kind of work team, no, I can't really trust that. So at the end of it all, I've shrunk the relationship. Sometimes it's difficult when we cannot shrink the relationship enough We're stuck with them. We have to deal with them. But then, at least in our own minds, we shrink the relationship. So these are things we can do. Think about what you can do. Where you have agency, where you have autonomy. Including, what can you do inside your own mind? Internally, I think to myself sometimes, you may have my body. You may have my tax dollars. Okay, You may have my White House, but you don't have my mind. Bad enough that you have some of those things. I'm not going to levy my mind as well. I'm not going to let you get into my head. 
Dennis Rodman, the great basketball player, was a genius at getting into the head of other people. You know, get Dennis Rodman out of my head. Worm tongue, Lord of the Rings. I'm going to get your voice out of my head. Okay. These are things we can do. So be thinking, what could I do myself in this difficult relationship, inside me or outside me? Maybe in skillful ways I can get other people to bear witness to what's been done to me. That's very important. There are pitfalls with that where we draw people into our story and the case we've got running in our mind, blah, 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 blah. But very often it's profoundly important to feel that others stand with us about the injustice that was done. We can't change the injustice maybe, either currently or historically, but at least there's recognition with us about the ways that we were mistreated. Classically, there are like three parts to the mind, in a sense. The inner child, the critical parent, and the nurturing parent, or modern update is the victim, the one who was done to, in an honorable sense, and then the persecutor or perpetrator, and the protector. Very often, there's not much of a sense of an internal protector, an internal nurturer, an internal advocate or champion. You know. And so the important thing to build up is more of that internal sense of others who are with us. So we can do that, perhaps. We can reach out to others. We can also internalize them or in our minds, hear more of their voice in our head. We could do these things. Often we can comment on what has happened. We can't, they won't change, but at least we can name you know, the first thing that oppressive forces try to do is muzzle their victims. And one of the very first things to reclaim is naming what's true. Naming it. We can name it. Right? Sometimes it's not safe to name it. We can't name it, okay? But if we can, we can, we can name it. We can even name it when it's happening. I'm talking with you about not interrupting me, and you're interrupting me while I'm talking with you about not interrupting me. It's here, right now. I can name it. I can have confidence in my moral authority here. I can have confidence that, you know, this isn't right. You're going to do what you do, but you can't talk me out of feeling that there's something deeply wrong here in what's happening. You're more willing to keep your agreements with your coworkers about trivia at work than you're willing to keep your agreements with your own children about their baseball games or school plays. And to, and to feel a confidence. I think a lot of people of our, my generation lack a certain moral self-confidence because we threw the baby out with the bathwater of getting rid of a lot of top-down religious strictures or commandments, but we didn't replace it with... Um, a, a confidence in our own integrity and our own moral um, view. Okay. We can do these things. You know. We can be on our own side in a tense conversation. So if you could then, reflecting on what you could do or some of what you could do, maybe that's an increment above and beyond what you have done, Right? See if you can bring in a sense of allies. You know, people perhaps actual or imagined in your life who support you in, you know, being strong and being assertive. 
See if you can get a sense, even in your body right now, of, of strength. Maybe bringing to mind a time when you were really strong. Maybe it was physical, you had to deal with a tough situation, or just that last repetition of weight in the gym, what you mustered to do that. Or maybe a time of advocacy for others, bringing up the felt sense of strength. And imagining bringing this strength into um, some assertiveness. And then seeing if something is blossoming in you or or crystallizing, coalescing, uh, a quality of resolve or determination. Not just what you could do, but after you walk out of here, what you actually will do. Or what you aspire to do. You know, in Buddhist practice, there are these precepts and the language of them is, is I undertake the training precept too. So there's an undertaking. It's not as if I accept the commandment, but there's an undertaking, and it's a training. It's understood that it's a gradual process. So, but, the, but there's still resolve. I, there's resolve in the acceptance, the undertaking of a precept. What, what do you resolve for? Can you feel what determination feels like? Intention, maybe bringing up other times in your life when you've had real resolve, real um, seriousness about what you're going to do. And then finishing up, a sense of the benefit to yourself and others. You know, without it guaranteed, but kind of the best odds benefit of being strong being direct, being firm, whatever it is, standing your ground, naming what is, or managing your reactions inside, being a friend to yourself, whatever it is. What might be the ripples of benefit for yourself and others from you being this sort of a stand? Okay, come on back. So I thought what we could do is talk a bit about this. And um, I request, right now, it's a request, see? I'm going to try to model what I teach. I request that it's 445, that you stay here till 5, or the formal ending, which will be very close to 5, unless you really do need to leave early. If you do, it's, it's cool. It's a pass. But... If you can, stay to the end, because otherwise it's a little disheartening, at least to me, when a bunch of people start leaving. Okay, so comments or questions about that practice. What was that like for you? What did you learn from it for yourself? What's important for you to register? Yeah, right behind you there, Amy. Hand up still, please. Uh, 
My name is Laurel, and I think... Say my daughter's name is Laurel, too. Yeah, I heard that, because it's not a common name. Um, The most powerful of this for me was to really identify and name very clearly what I was not powerful, Mm. what was outside of my power to change. Ah. And it's it really puts you in a very different place. Yeah, very thank nice. you. Thank you. Oh, good, great. Yeah. Right over there. Uh, Amy, see the person there, glasses. There's only one mic runner right there. Do you want to just maybe speak up? Can you do that? Oh, good, okay, go for it. Um, the thing that I was trying to solve, um, realized it was impossible to solve. That um, the things I didn't have any control over, the things I did have control over, allies and desired result, all pretty much came up with with zero. <laughs> so um, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that because it, it, it pertains to a relationship with my father and it's like, there's just this feeling that there's just absolutely nothing that I I can do given all the you know all of that uh, the three lines of the serenity prayer there it's it's kind of um, a bit of awakening so ah I got it and without knowing any of the particulars I think allies of course include uh, people that are not involved in the system whatever that is allies like friends or therapists or spiritual teachers, what have you, or including an internal sense of guides. I've gotten a lot of value from just simply imagining wise, you know, the Jungian archetype of the wise woman, the wise man, the tree, what have you, you know. I've gotten a lot of value from that. Or sometimes I'll just be quiet and I'll just say, huh, what's wisdom? And, I'll, and a word or phrase will pop into my mind. That's an ally, you know. And the other is to realize that uh, there's always something we can do inside our own mind. You know, uh, and that's also where we have a lot of agency. Yeah, but you're right. Sometimes we can't do a darn thing about them. Yeah. Okay. Another person or two. Great. Right there. Good. Thank you. Um, you commented on victim, honorable prosecutor, and perpetrator. Was yeah. that external or internal? Okay, great question. So this is one of those ideas in psychology that's been really helpful to me personally, and I think to others too. Um, It comes out of transactional analysis back in the 70s. Eric Burns, games people play. It's the idea that uh, as we grow up, there, um, you know, we have all these interactions with the world, but they, what the brain does is it indexes across lots of moments of life to find kind of patterns or prototypes or essences or paradigms. So a classic paradigm is self over here, right, and things coming at me that hurt and things coming at me that protect me from things that hurt and also nurture me and kind of feed me. And Burns' way of talking about it was critical parent, nurturing parent, um, I think there are a lot of forces that hurt that are not parents, you know, like peers, siblings, life events, and so forth, okay? And so it starts out there often, but it gets internalized here. So then you find people who have an internalized sense of kind of the beleaguered internal kind of essence of the self with this pounding, harsh critic, you know, Freud's superego, if you will, Yam, yam, bam, bam, bad, you know, bad girl, bad boy, whatever. 
And then over here, you have uh, other forces that say essentially, no, that's not true. You're a really good person. Um, you can try harder, you know, or, or it'll go better. Give it a try. See? The problem for most people, though, is that, number one, where, where the, they, they have a very weak uh, internalized self-nurturer, self-encourager, self-protector, kind of supporter, right? And this critic um, is really overly powerful. And also, often, where our action, where the real wound in life is not so much with the, the forces that did us harm, because to use Fred's technical term, we know they're assholes, <laughs> right? But where the action is, is why did you let it happen, Dad? Why did you let it happen, Mom? You know, why, why didn't you step up? Why, when I told you about Uncle Bob being a weirdo, creepo, and worse, did you slap me? Because he's your brother. You know, why? I mean, that's a lot where the action is, see? And so one of the takeaways for that for me is to really, really, really build up this felt sense of being cared about, seen, having allies, and internalized um, advocates, protectors, encouragers, champions, cheerleaders, and all the rest of that. You know, when we evolved in the Serengeti, exile was a death sentence. You know, we're profoundly social. We're the most social species on the planet by far. The brain has tripled in size, in volume, since we humans, hominids, first began manufacturing stone tools. Most of that build-out is devoted to love, broadly defined, devoted to social functions like language, cooperative planning, bonding, attachment, altruism, etc. And so, to me, it's one of the takeaways from modern science is to appreciate how important it is to have an internalized sense of allies. You know, if we're going to go into that moment of assertiveness, um, you know, it's important to go into that situation, you know, with, with our team ready to go. That's what I meant by that. And what's the victim perpetrator? Oh, it's this different languaging of the. Th- it comes out of different a different body of knowledge that some people, especially therapists, are more are aware of. You know, there's a sense that there's there's the one who is done to. Then over here, there's maybe the molester, or the criminal, or the assaulter, the rapist, you know, the burglar, the drunk driver. And over here, they're protectors like the, ju- like the justice system or parents who could have, would have, should have stepped in but didn't maybe, things like that. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, over there. Good. Someone finally from the wings. Yay, Amy. Yeah. I was just wondering if you could address the difficulty in inaction. My own personal experience with not having the communication is that I'm most effective by not communicating not, and by being compassionate to others, I have to find self-compassion for my inability to resolve a situation, address somebody else's suffering. And my most effective gains have come by doing nothing in, in, in the appropriate or waiting for the appropriate time. And I don't know. Just maybe that's just my own experience as somebody who doesn't have problems with assertiveness. It's more the opposite. Ah. Inaction. Yeah. Well, I think there, so thank you for that. And two things for me to build on really about it. The first is that I think sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is nothing. You know, uh, Tara Brock, who wrote a lovely book called Radical Acceptance, which is in this territory very much of this workshop today, talks about the sacred pause where we buy ourselves time. I think about it neurologically that the limbic system is sort of this ancient early mammalian system, it has about a three seconds head start on prefrontal cortex, which is more modern and can exercise more control. It has more resources, but sometimes it's just 
um, it's kind of left at the starting blocks, you know. So buying ourselves time to bring to bear the resources that are slower but more massive of prefrontal cortex is a useful thing to do. I also think about, frankly, the um, um, this line I read in a novel written by a Native American, you know, in America, who said, as I think he's put it, you know, uh, our greatest weapon against the white man was silence. It's a very profound comment, actually. Sometimes I think um, taking it out of that frame of in the language of weapon, let's say, perhaps, but sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is just simply look at someone and just kind of look at them or just watch. You know, not creepy stare. <laughs> or, you know, or shaking our head. Tone comes in lots of ways, but just sort of hanging in there, looking at them, you know. Uh, I think about, I don't know if you saw the film Gandhi, you know, which portrayed very vividly the truth during the Salt March in the 40s, you know, where the Indians basically as a protest uh, against the British tax on salt uh, went to the ocean to get seawater. What an innocent thing. And there was a line of British soldiers, and basically the nonviolent people would just walk toward the line of soldiers who would club them to the ground, and then the next person would walk forward. And the Indians, they, they just they didn't say a word. They just walked forward. But what a powerful thing, you know. So sometimes I think silence is very powerful. The second thing, though, is to know your tendency. You know, when I grew up, this valve in the throat was throttled down. You know, it was not okay for kids in my family to express anger. Parents could, but no, not us, you know. And one of the things I needed to do was to break the silence. You know, I needed to make myself talk. I was in my um, mid-twenties before I could make myself say the word no to my father. I actually set it up. You know, I was on a phone call so I could do it. I wrote notes, you know, <laughs> no, you know, I found a thing. And I said, no, you know, like I didn't really, you know. And I, eh. So, you know, we, we work with our different tendencies. And I think knowing our tendencies, and, you know, is very helpful here, too. But also beware the little voice in the mind because, you know, periodically I meet people who are, you know, they're really assertive and they're blowhards and they're just tell everybody what to do. Okay. But for every one of those, I know probably 10 people who pull their punches, who don't really say the whole thing. They don't speak the truth. They don't feel legitimized in their truth. They don't feel entitled to speak up. Or they have internalized reasons for delaying, deferring, or watering down, keeping the peace. You know the line, uh, harmony over truth, right? And I think watch your own internal voices. What are they telling you to do, right? If you know that your style is to be kind of warlike and, you know, fiery, okay. Maybe it's, you know, you need to bring in more of a kind of cooling bath and quiet and restraint. Okay, great. On the other hand, if you know your style tends to be to water things down, pull punches, be, care be careful, be fearful, and so forth, th always think later what you could have said and actually legitimately very much really could have said, well, maybe you need to help yourself in various ways that we've explored to be you know, more direct, more in real time, more assertive. A couple more, and then we'll wrap up. Why don't you just call out, okay, yeah, please, you, then you, then we'll wrap up, okay? So what I notice in myself is this spectrum of I, when I feel my anger, then I can get this. It's, it's the sense of, okay, it's time to take action. But along with that often comes a coolness or a coldness, creating a bunch of distance. And that's the opposite spectrum of 
it's fine, don't worry about it, you know, which isn't true. And so I'm curious about the communication that needs to take place along the boundary line that comes with the anger, that the anger is often a sign for something's not okay here, or, and how to communicate that. And you said you had the image of Martin Luther King earlier, and I'm wondering if you can just offer a little more there in terms of how to communicate that without the coldness, wanting to keep the warmth inside myself and to that person. Yeah. So if I follow you right, um, first part, you know, I think that it, that very often fieriness and passion has a place. Because there's something almost creepy and inauthentic when you know someone is fired up and they talk to you like Spock or, you know, like a cyber, like Stepford, the Stepford dad or teacher or whatever. Something a little weird about that. So I think I've explored myself the interesting place where there can be a, a fieriness, a fierceness. Julia Butterfly Hill, kind of a hero for me, sitting in a tree for two years, you know. And she's really, you watch her YouTube clips and stuff, she's a very deep practitioner and strong teacher. She talks about fierce compassion. You know, where and I think it's true just as a practical matter, lots of times people are mobilized to do something to finally address mom's drinking. You know, after the fifth ruined Thanksgiving, you know, or they're moved to finally um, you know, march or what have you. There's a place for that passion and even anger and outrage, you know, and fire. Tricky business is to watch where it starts tipping into suffering and harm for ourselves and others, where we burn out or we create more problems than we're trying to solve or we give people pretexts to come back at us. I mean, that's kind of an interesting art. And I err there myself if I'm dealing with a population of people that has historically been squelched or, or been told that they're too much, then I'm especially careful about not sending those kind of messages and thoughtful about those. I think that's important. Okay, So that's part one. Two, iciness and coldness often cuts more deeply than anything else. You know, because iciness and coldness moves very quickly to disdain and contempt and dehumanization of the other. And that is very, very salient and impactful in relationships. So when I feel that in myself, which often is associated with this very articulate you know, case about them and bill of particulars, you know, and all the rest. For me, that's an internal big yellow flag, like, whoa, something's off here. Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) Then it's time to, like, regroup, recenter, maybe talk to somebody or slow it down, you know. Um, Okay, that's what I'd say about that in passing. Okay, one last person, then we'll wrap on this one. I'm just curious. Um, how do you know you have truly forgiven someone, even though you have told that person you have forgiven them, and you think you have forgiven them? How do you know you have truly done that? Okay, so how do you know you have truly forgiven them? And this is where I think the distinction that I made between level one and level two, that's my language, not Fred's, of forgiveness. Level two meaning we absolve them truly. We give them a pass. We just we let it go. They get a fresh start with us or in life, whatever. Okay, I think there's a place for that. All right. Level one is... No, I'm not giving you a fresh start. I'm not commuting your sentence or whatever, but I'm not going to be bothered by this anymore. Right? Um, a, a quick Zen story, uh, well known. Two monks, senior monk, junior monk, are walking down a path. They've taken vows of celibacy that are very serious, no contact with women. The senior, they see a 
beautiful maiden standing by a, a river that's full of mud and yuck, and she's in gorgeous, you know, silk robes, whatever. The senior monk says, would you like me to carry you across the river? And she says, well, thank you, sir. So he carries her across the river, sets her down, keeps going. Meanwhile, for the next mile or two or ten, the junior monk is fuming. What? How could he do that? How could he break the rules? How could he hold her in his arms? How could he feel her soft thighs against his chest? How could he smell her hair? How could he do that? Right? Blah, 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 blah. Finally, he bursts out three, five, ten miles down the road and says to the senior monk, How could you do that? You broke your vows. The senior monk looks at him and said, I set her down on the other side of the stream, but you've been carrying her ever since. (laughs) See? So we realize we're not, you know, are we still carrying that around? Is it like a black hole that keeps sucking attention? You know, in systems theory, is it a strange attractor that keeps drawing us back? Okay. So if it does, we know we haven't gotten to level one. If it occupies us, if we think about it, if we come back to it, we know we haven't gotten to level one. Personally, I think that this forgiveness business, and I bet Fred would agree, it's a developmental process. You know, you imagine the things there are to forgive is kind of like a pie, you know? Okay, now it's a two-dimensional pie, a circle, pie. And so we work through the various sectors or slices of that pie, and we get to a piece about it. And then time passes, and something else happens, or memory surfaces, or somebody says something, or reminds us of that, or, or we bump into that person again, and, and then we find ourselves processing the pie at a deeper level. You know, and then we let it go, and then we move on to an even deeper level. So I think that's often more of a process rather than an either-or, I've forgiven or I've not forgiven. But I think if we are clear about what our intention is, that's the most fundamental piece of all. And maybe that's a place to leave you with here today, you know, if I could, which is that for me, when I try to assimilate all this... Um, in a frame in which one recognizes the real complexity of this. This is a very ambitious workshop, and we've left a lot out or just touched the surface of it. It's by its nature. You know, we're all in process here, and I think, frankly, we're trying to figure out as, as very aggressive animals, the human species, you know, we're trying to figure out what is this proper balance of being assertive and strong while simultaneously learning to live in peace with 7 billion people on this battered old planet. You know, how we do that. And for me, the crux there is intention. What's the intention? Is the intention for ill will or goodwill? Is the intention to throw hot coals or try to, you know, pour some water on the fire? Uh, is the intention to, be, uh, to discover the truth or, and the whole truth, or is the intention to hold on to our case, you know? What's the intention? And that, I think, is really where the essence of it all sits. And the thing I'd like to leave you with, honestly, is something that's been very, very important for me more and more, is recognizing the good intentions that are inside your own heart. You know, very often the last person to recognize the goodness of is the person looking back at us in the mirror. To, to truly recognize no halo required, perfection's not required, the fundamental goodness that's in your heart, that you're a good person, you have good intentions, imperfectly expressed, good intentions, and to honor those good intentions, you know, be a stand for those good intentions, um, hold on to the possibility of good, not be disheartened by the difficulties in the world, you know, and recognize truly in your heart of hearts that you really are a good person. 
So I think that's a great gift to give oneself, and it's a gift to give to other people. So I really wish you well. That's a wrap. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.